Welcome to Voyager, the podcast. I'm your host, Eric Morgan. I'm a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay and editor-in-chief of Voyager, Northeast Wisconsin's Historical Review. Published twice a year since 1984, our magazine is dedicated to preserving the history of a 26-county area of greater Northeast Wisconsin. Voyager is published by the Brown County Historical Society in cooperation with the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. You can learn more about the magazine by visiting our website, voyagermagazine.org. Summer is now upon us, and that means days at the beach, backyard barbecues, and, of course, baseball. When we think about sports in northeast Wisconsin, most minds will go immediately to the Green Bay Packers. However, as our guests on this episode's podcast have shown, baseball actually has a fascinating, albeit somewhat hidden, history in northeast Wisconsin. Our guests today are Jeff Ash and Kurt Blumenau, who authored two articles on baseball in northeast Wisconsin for the summer-fall 2021 issue of Voyager. Jeff Ash is a Green Bay writer and researcher. He curates and contributes content for Green Bay and Wausau history groups on Facebook and has done long-term Twitter projects recounting the Green Bay Packers 1965, 1966, and 1967 championship seasons and the Milwaukee Bucks' 1970-1971 NBA championship season. He wrote and edited Titletown's Team, a photographic history of the Green Bay Packers, and has edited several other books on the Packers. He holds a BA from UW-Eau Claire and worked for newspapers in Green Bay, Madison, and Eau Claire. Kurt Blumenau is a corporate communications professional and former journalist based in the Boston area. He's a native of Western New York State and a member of the Society for American Baseball Research, for which this his story was first written. Jeff and Kurt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's start with your personal connection to baseball. I assume that both of you, like me, uh, were huge fans of the game as kids. I grew up rooting for the Cleveland Indians in my hometown, uh, first for the very terrible teams of the 1980s, uh, but then for the really amazing Indians teams in the mid-1990s uh, that went to a few World Series. Uh, which, which teams and players did you follow as you were growing up? Um, and also, how did you how did your love for the game develop into actually writing about baseball? Um, well, I'll go first. Um, my love for baseball goes back to the mid '60s, um, basically baseball cards. Um, when I moved to Sheboygan from uh, Missouri, uh, my friend that lived in my neighborhood collected baseball cards, and I got into that. And um, that was a time, the late '60s, when there was no Major League Baseball in Milwaukee. The Braves had left. Uh, the Brewers had yet to come. And so I kind of followed all the teams and uh, really got to know all the players uh, through baseball cards. Because at the time, uh, there wasn't a lot of baseball on television. You had game of the week on Saturday afternoon, and that was it. And uh, that basically got the ball rolling. Um, I was always interested in, in writing. So, of course, I wrote about baseball, uh, you know, high school newspapers, and then I went had a long career in the newspaper business. Um, so that's really how it got started. And then also I played for many years, baseball and softball. I was uh, fortunate enough to play for almost 50 years for all of those wow. things combined. Um, so uh, that's that's my story. Jeff, do you, did you have a prized baseball card that you remember? Um, do you still have it or did it pay for your you know kids' college? Oh, I still have them all. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, my collection starts about 1968, and uh, most of my collection is now described as vintage cards. 
and some of them are indeed quite valuable. Um, they're not for sale. Um, they're, they're not in perfect condition, um, but uh, I do have them. You weren't one of those kids that put your baseball cards in the spokes of your your, your bicycle, hopefully. Oh, sure I did. Sure. When you, <laughs> when, when you had doubles and uh, triples and, and guys, that, you know, if you had that, then you did that, sure. But, uh, no, we weren't putting Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente and uh, uh, those types of players in the, in the bikes. I would hope not. Well, Kurt, how about you? Um, my story is a little bit different in the sense that uh, television actually did play some role in it. Um, growing up in the first half of the 1980s, uh, at first I was a New York Mets fan, um, chiefly because a friend of mine could get their games through cable, uh, and they were lousy, so there were none of the tensions of a pennant chase. <laughs> I <laughs> so, love that. Uh, you could just I, enjoy it. And I had that no, kind of Charlie no Brown mentality, I guess. I didn't <laughs> want to get too, uh, didn't want to get disappointed. And I wasn't sure what to do with myself a couple years later when they got good and won the World Series. Um, and then the other, kind of the other allegiance for me was the Baltimore Orioles, uh, because I grew up in Rochester, New York, which for 30-some years was the home of the Orioles top minor league team, the Rochester Red Wings. Um, and they're still around. They're affiliated with the Washington Nationals nowadays. But uh, I missed seeing Cal Ripken in person by about a year. Um, I saw his brother, Billy. I saw Mike Messina, uh, Ben McDonald, who made his way to the Brewers later, I believe. And, Cal Ripken, uh, of course, was the Iron Man, who yeah. uh, I, I don't know the exact number. Perhaps one of you two do. But uh, he played in many, many, many consecutive games. I think it was. 2,632, but I could be wrong about that. It's hard but, to imagine that record being broken. Every um, day for, for years. Yep. Um, so that so that was, a, and I also collected baseball cards and still have mine. They're not quite as, as vintage as Jeff's, but uh, um, I, I, I yeah, still, still hold on to those. Um, the writing, I think my story is similar to Jeff's in that writing has always kind of come somewhat easy to me, or at least easier than other things. It was pretty obvious I wasn't going to be an engineer. Um, and I thought I, journalism was always, you know, a field that looked like it would be right for me. And I, I spent about a dozen years as a journalist, um, thought about being a sports writer as a kid and just didn't go in that direction. Um, but then more recently, when I joined the, again, the Society for American Baseball Research that kind of gave me an outlet to write, uh, to write about baseball a little more. So I've been pursuing that. Awesome. Well, thank you both. Um, before we get into your your articles, um, I'd just love to hear from two experts on how various uh, facets of the game of baseball, you know, from pitching to the power game to the fan experience, how it's changed from, you know, your youths to the modern game today. Um, well, you, you know, I go back further than Kurt. I, I go back to the 60s and um, Boy, how baseball has changed. It's it's really, you know, there's so much more of it now. Uh, you know, I, I again, there was only one game a week on television when I was growing up. And now it's on multiple channels, multiple times a day. You can see Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball, College Baseball, you know, what have you. And you can stream any number of, of teams. And that's really the big change is just exposure to it. And not, and not only baseball. You know, college softball uh, that women play, and uh, it's just all available to you, uh, which is great. Um, the game itself, though, 
some the major league game particularly uh, is kind of verging on watchable sometimes these days because they're it's all strikeout and home run and there's not much of anything else uh, when when I was younger you know the stolen base was a big thing there was a lot of running in the game there's a lot of strategy in the game um, uh, there might be too much strategy and analytics in the game the, these days and that that's really the big change you know I'm glad you brought up base stealing I played baseball too as a as a youth and teenager and I was I, I couldn't hit to to save my life um, my batting average is probably only half my weight um, but I could get on base uh, I got hit by pitches a lot for some reason and the only thing I was good at was was stealing bases so I've always appreciated that part of the game um, in Cleveland in the 90s we had Kenny Lofton who led the league in stolen bases for a while um, he was my favorite player by far a dynamic center fielder too and I agree that the 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 league today seems to be extremes right it's driven by strikeouts and home runs and and not much else kurt how about how about from your perspective and certainly jeff is uh, correct with all the things he's mentioned i'd also throw in that handling of pitchers is very different um i know in in jeff's youth it wouldn't it wouldn't have been uncommon for a major league pitcher or, or at least a, a real good one a star to finish or to throw complete games for 15 or you know, 20, 15 or 20 times a year and there's essentially no complete games anymore. You know, the starting pitcher is pretty tightly limited to six innings, maybe seven. And then there's this kind of bullpen gamesmanship that takes over, um, which also prolongs the game, which is another issue. The length of length of play, time of time of game uh, to focus on the minor leagues, too, because that's what my article is about. The the experience is very different from my youth, Jeff's youth and go, even going back to 1960 when that. Green Bay game takes place. Uh, the fields are in much better shape. Um, you know, the fan experience is totally, the whole thing is pretty much geared toward kind of entertainment fan experience, you know, with little snippets of pop songs between every other pitch and mascot races and, you know, theme nights and Star Wars jerseys and whatever. And it's, you know, it's it's fun and it makes money for the teams and I don't begrudge them that. I, I personally am content just to watch the ball game and I could use a little less of the, the frills. But, you know, <laughs> if, if it helps keep minor league baseball afloat, then you can't argue that either. I think there that is, probably says something about the attention span of, 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 yeah. of Americans more than anything else. Yeah. There is one other aspect, Eric, uh, about the change in baseball. Uh, it, it's a cultural change, really. And uh, baseball today is missing out on a lot of great black players. Uh, in the 60s and in the 70s and into the 80s, there were a tremendous number of black stars and um, you know black everyday players that is not in the game today. And uh, you know the numbers are way down from what they were at that time. And um, uh, that's something that that is a big change and we're just missing out on generations of potential stars. That's a really, really great point. Um, as other leagues, NFL, NBA seem to, you know, be uh, places for, for black Americans to, to thrive. That doesn't seem to be the case in major league baseball. Um, so let's dive into your work. Uh, Jeff, your article is a great story about the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League coming to Northeast Wisconsin. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little more about the AAG PBL, its significance, particularly during the time of the Second World War, and its brief time barnstorming through Northeast Wisconsin? 
The uh, All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which is quite a mouthful, <laughs> it, uh, is. <laughs> uh, it was uh, created during World War II. Uh, in 1943 was its first season. It was created by Philip Wrigley, who was the owner of the Chicago Cubs. And Wrigley's concern, first of all, was that baseball uh, could potentially be canceled during World War II. That was the worst case scenario. The other scenario would just be that fans would not come out to the ballpark. There, there, wouldn't, be, there wouldn't be anything to see. Um, so Wrigley, uh, his original notion was to have a women's baseball league, this league, uh, and have it play in major league parks throughout the country. And the other major league owners kind of said, ah, Phil, you're on your own on that. And so what he did was uh, create a, a regional women's baseball league, regional uh, kind of centered around the Chicago area. And... Um, it was just, it was kind of to, to fill ballparks, uh, not necessarily major league ballparks as it played out, but uh, it was uh, something to keep interest in baseball uh, up during World War II. And during that time, the major sports in this country were baseball, boxing, and college football. There was really, uh, pro football was not a player. Pro basketball didn't even exist uh, at the time in 1943. So uh, baseball was, it was America's sport. And uh, 1943, uh, it started out with four teams in the league. There was uh, the Rockford Peaches, the Kenosha Comets, the South Bend Blue Sox, and the Racine Bells. Again, all kind of uh, regionally located around Chicago. In 1944, they expanded. They added two teams, the Milwaukee Chicks and the Minneapolis Millerettes, and that's where Green Bay comes in. Fantastic. Um, at this moment, I'm going to uh, bring in um, our two digital media interns uh, who have uh, appeared on the podcast a, a couple of times, and they've got some questions um, for both of you as well. Hi, Patient and Cora. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. So I'm Hypatia and I'm a first year student here at the University of Green Bay. Um, I study environmental, environmental policy and planning and my question is for Jeff. Many of our readers and listeners will be most familiar with the AAGBPL through its portrayal in the 1994 film, A League of Their Own, which starred Tom Hanks, Gina Davis, Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell. How faithful was A League of Their Own to the actual people in the events in uh, events of the AAGPBL? Uh, uh, well, Hypatia, the uh, the film, uh, which is almost thirty years old now, uh, was uh, loosely based on the first season of the league of the nineteen forty three season, and uh, by all accounts. Um, it's fairly true to the experience. Um, uh, a lot of the women players were still alive uh, when the film was made, and, and over the years they've celebrated the film at its 10, 20-year anniversaries. Um, and that's pretty much what is said when uh, the former players talk about the film. It was pretty true to the experience. Uh, a couple of things that didn't ring true to them were 
um, they really didn't tease or, or needle their chaperones. You know, they, they liked their chaperones. They treated them well. Um, the chaperones are kind of a comic element of the film. Um, and another thing in the film was uh, uh, some of the players were sliding into first base or sliding into the bases head first. And they didn't do that. They always slid feet first because they had uh, basically um, uh, sliding uh, sliding tights or what have you underneath the short skirts that they wore for their uniform. But otherwise, uh, uh, in the players uh, and the managers and the people in the game as portrayed in the film uh, were fairly true to the experience. Thank you. Um, I guess the sliding part is like an interesting take because that's the one part that I always remember from the movie. My sister loved A League of Their Own, and so we always watched it all the time. Thanks for mentioning that. All right. Um, hi, I'm Cora, and I'm also a first-year student at Green Bay. Um, I'm studying psychology um, and hope to go to vet school after graduation, but we'll see. Um, so my question is for Kurt. And, you know, your article takes place almost a decade later um, in the 1960s. So um, it chronicles the end of minor league baseball in Green Bay. So can you tell us a little bit more and how you learned about this story and why it's important in understanding the region's past? Sure. No problem, Cora. Um, I learned about the story again uh, through my membership in the Society for American Baseball Research. I'll call it SABRE. Um, that's sort of the shorthand. Um, they have, among their many other research areas, they have a thing called the Games Project, uh, which can be seen online by anybody. It's open to open to the public on their on their website. And basically, members of the of the group are welcome to write articles about interesting historic games, uh, and they can be at any level. They don't have to be major league. And they don't have to be kind of big picture, you know, World Series type games because, uh, yeah, there's there are a million stories out there. There are lots of interesting games. Um, I have an interest in minor league baseball, and uh, I had written a couple of pieces for the games project about different communities that uh, gained or lost minor league teams. Uh, for instance, Allentown, Pennsylvania, where I used to live. Uh, they lost their team in 1960, and then they went 47 years without getting it until they got a new one. Um, and so I wrote a piece for the games project about the last minor league game in Allentown before this this lengthy get. And uh, and I discovered that the, a similar thing had happened in Green Bay. And uh, you know the news there were uh, good newspaper resources available to tell the story, and so I went back and and did the research, and uh, and so it kind of fit into this pattern of stories that I was writing about, uh, you know, the minor leagues coming and going in, in different communities. Uh, it's an interesting kind of snapshot of America at the time, because uh, the minor leagues used to be much more widespread than they are now. Um, and I did, I did a little little research here. I found out in, in 1946, right after uh, World War II, there were 43 affiliated minor leagues, which means that some or all of the teams in the league had a direct connection to a major league team. You know, they were supported by a major league team that provided them players. Uh, by 1960, that had fallen by half. There were 21 minor leagues uh, in across America. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, television, uh, 
kind of bid into the attendance of the minor league games. Uh, the ascension of pro football drew people's attention away from the minor leagues. Um, and also, to be honest, there was just kind of an oversupply. I mean, keep in mind that the purpose of the minor leagues is to develop, generally to develop prospects on their way up. And teams didn't need, a major league team didn't need to have five teams at the lowest level of the minors to do that. They could get by with two. And so there was just kind of a natural, um, you know, there was a natural decrease in the number of sort of major league affiliated leagues and teams that were out there. And uh, and Green Bay is sort of part of a larger national pattern in that regard. Well, Thank Kurt, you. Um, sure. when the, the minor league um, team left Green Bay, which is, you know, what you chronicle in your story, was that was that mourned by Green Bay sports fans? Um, and did the Packers then effectively fill that role, that void relatively easily? I have to confess, I don't have firsthand knowledge just because I'm not, I'm not of Green Bay. I mean, Jeff, Jeff might know people or have lived that. My sense is from reading, you know, from reading the sports articles at the time is that the the last Green Bay team didn't draw very well. I mean, almost to a to a crisis point. There was an article in the mid in the middle of the season that said something about, uh, you know, the team might have to fold if they didn't start getting more people in the ballpark. And then they made it to the end of the year. But um, yeah, it, it doesn't. It just doesn't se- seem, in retrospect, like the team had a deep enough pool of fans to be sustainable. And you know, in that situation, while I'm sure there were some people who who mourned that loss, yeah, you know, there just wasn't the the real strong support. And uh, you know, given the national reputation and the dominance that the Packers enjoyed starting in the '60s, it's hard to imagine that. You know, most Green Bay fans probably weren't content with that, you know. but Right. Uh, and that was the sense sure I got from your, I'm sure there were from your article, too, though, that the, the fan base just simply wasn't there, right? I mean, it's interesting thinking about this, though. You know, some cities are baseball towns. Some cities are basketball towns. I mean, Cleveland, despite, you know, having LeBron James for nine years um, and winning a championship um, finally back in, in 2016. Um, we're a football town. We always have been, no matter how bad the Browns, you know, we could have 10, zero and 16 seasons in a row. And I think people would still come out to the games. Now we finally have a winning team, which is, is strange. It's kind of like uh, you growing up as a Mets fan. I, I don't know how to deal with it now, but yeah, Washington DC is like that. I think too. I mean, they're on their third major league franchise now. I think they're a, they're a, I think they're a football town person. They have a baseball tradition. There are people there who love baseball, but you know, I, I suspect the football team is the top show in town. It's just an, an interesting point that, that uh, we're bringing up. And I, I would love to, to, you know, have somebody talk a little bit more about why that may be. Um, so you mentioned already the Society for American Baseball Researchers, Sabre. Um, yeah. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that project and um, the, 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 or the that organization and then the larger project you mentioned that you that this article is a part of? Sure. Um, Sabre is uh, just recently celebrated its 50th anniversary um, and it's it's open to, to anybody. You don't have to be a super fan or obsessive or anything about that um, to join it or support it, um, although obviously a healthy interest in, in baseball helps. And it pursues baseball research in a number of different forms. Uh, one area where they've done a lot of work is advanced statistical research. Some of the stuff that Jeff says is killing the game and you know, it's, it, it can be taken too far, certainly. There, there's, there's a time and a place for it. But 
for instance, the school of advanced, there's this whole school of advanced statistical research that is known in some circles as sabermetrics because a lot of it came out of the work of saber members. Um, and it's a, they do things like attempt to quantify things that had never been measured. Like for instance, fielding statistics traditionally are just based on errors. Um, how many chances you handled and how many, you know, how many errors you made. They never calculated range which is an important thing because a, a player who the player who can only get to a ball within either a step on each side of him will have fewer chances and may make fewer errors whereas somebody who is a lot of range and covers a lot of ground will get to more balls they may make more errors because of that it doesn't necessarily make them a worse fielder so there's dimensions to the performance that are not captured in the traditional statistics and uh but that's only part of it. Uh, Saber's also interested in, um, you know, players, stories, you know, trends, um, and also in trying to sort of get beyond uh, some of the old, old. Th For instance, there's, you, you may have heard of the 1919 Chicago Black Sox, as they're called. They were formerly the White Sox. Formerly of course, called one the of the White great Sox, scandals in yeah, known as the White, known history. as the Black Sox for throwing the the World Series. Um, it turns out that an, there are a number of things that people assumed were true about that team for years that are actually either half true or not true at all. Kind of the you know narratives took root, you know, back years ago that weren't necessarily reflective of the of the truth. And I've I know that there are some Saber members who have done a lot of digging into records, into interviews, into research, and have kind of produced a, a fresh view of that whole scandal. Uh, you know, to, to more accurately capture what was uh, what was going on. So that that's another the kind of thing that they do. Um, Saber members will you know research um, and try to bring new light on the things we thought we knew about. That's really fascinating to hear. I I'm going to look up that specific article. And I mean that's one of the things that historians do, right? Is um, mm -hmm. we revisit old narratives and um, whether it means that there's new sources or just new ways of looking at an old story, it's important to do so because I think as you said, um, you know, mythology and lore and can take over. And mm -hmm. and you know while those things can be fun. Um, we want to get, I guess, you know, closer to what actually happened as, as best as we possibly can. Um, are you working on any other baseball related projects at the moment? Um, working on additional game stories. Um, another, they also have a biography project, biographies of uh, you know, players, uh, front office uh, staff, all, all sorts of people. And they do uh, ballparks. I've done a couple of ballpark biographies and I'm working on some others. Um, for instance, I, I learned through research uh that uh, there's a highway that uh in binghamton new york that i pass through to go see my parents in in central new york turns out this highway goes over the site of a former minor league ballpark for 50 years there's a ballpark there people like thurman munson and whitey ford stars of the past played in this ballpark and they they condemned it and tore it down to make way for this highway and i, I i've been on that highway dozens of times and i had no idea and when I found out about that, I said, oh, I want to tell this story. So I, I wrote it up, uh, the story of this kind of a bio of this ballpark. So that, that's the kind Sounds of thing. Sounds like a, I, an opportunity for an archaeological baseball dig, perhaps. <laughs> I, I wonder if there's anything uh, left there. That's, yeah. that's a fascinating story. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's fantastic. Um, I believe Hypatia has uh, a, a couple questions uh, for both of you. 
Yeah, so I have a couple of questions for the both of you. Um, baseball has always held a special and somewhat nostalgic place in our collective memory and um, in the American national experience. What do you believe baseball symbolizes for Americans? And do you feel uh, it is still the country's national pastime or has something else like social media taken its place? Well, I, I think uh, baseball is nostalgically thought of as America's pastime. I, I don't, it, America doesn't have the passion for baseball today that it had in the 1960s and the 1950s and, and before that. Uh, football, professional football came in in the 1960s and really seized the imagination of uh, sports fans across America. So, uh, you know, the NFL became number one, Major League Baseball became number two. And then uh, in the 80s and into the 90s, there's the rise of uh, pro basketball. There's the NBA, uh, especially among younger sports fans. Uh, the NBA is a very big deal. Um, so baseball is, um, I, I'm not even sure where it is. I'm not even sure it's number three anymore because of the rise of uh, soccer in America. Um, you know, that's become so popular also uh, among younger sports fans. Um, it's uh, the thing with baseball, it has such a long tradition. It goes back to the 1800s. Uh, you know, it's part of the fabric of America. Uh, it will always be with us. But uh, culturally, uh, I think it has uh, uh, lost its place as number one uh, in American culture. I'd, I'd uh, sort of piggyback on that a bit. I've had the exact same thoughts that uh, Jeff did. You know, there's the rise. Basketball has, you know, claimed a, a pretty sizable place. Um, football, um, like for instance, here in Boston, the radio station that I listen to for Red Sox games has been advertising like crazy around the clock NFL draft analysis and commentary. They don't do that for baseball. Um, I was just going to bring up the draft. The, mm -hmm. the first round was last night and, you know, people gather for that, right? Mm -hmm. and parties and bars. And it's, it's hard to imagine something like that in baseball. Um, I think most people don't even know there's a draft in baseball. Um, but for the NFL, it's a, it's a huge deal and moneymaker. Mm -hmm. And soccer, too. I was, I'm glad Jeff pointed that out. I used to think it was kind of pretentious, to be honest, when an American person had a favorite British soccer team. You know, I thought that was an affectation. But nowadays, I mean, there's that's true. You, know, you can get any you can learn anything you want on the Internet. And there are a lot of Americans who are really seem to be putting in the time and who, who know who the key players are and know the club history. And it, it it's not a pretension anymore. It's a genuine fandom. And that, that's and it's a, it's an effect of, of, of globalization. Right. We often think that globalization is, you know, American culture spreading abroad. But I think. The, the soft craze and um, enthusiasm shows that it that it goes in all directions, right? And I think you're absolutely right with the access instantaneously to information about players and teams uh, abroad. Um, that appeal seems to be only growing stronger, um, which is which is absolutely fascinating to think about. Well, um, I'd like to conclude just uh, where we are today. Um, how did the COVID-19 pandemic 
affect baseball? Um, did the major leagues do the best they could last season and have fans now embraced the return of the irreplaceable experience of going to a ballpark for a game? To me, there really is nothing like going to to a baseball game. The environment, the, the ambience, it's just something something really wonderful about that. The pandemic um, affected baseball as it affected a lot of other sports. Um, most significantly, it, it shrunk the 2020 season to 60 games, and it wiped out the entire minor league season. There, there were no minor league games played in 2020. Um, and how that has affected baseball, it's kind of allowing baseball to redefine itself uh, because uh, the major league uh, MLB took over the minor leagues uh, last year and, and realigned them and kind of streamlined them. And now there are only four minor league teams per each major league team. Um, and there are some uh, game changes and some rule changes that have come in uh, that were put in place last year during the pandemic games, seven inning major league double headers, uh, putting a, a runner at second base in extra innings so the game goes faster. Uh, those changes are staying uh, to a certain extent. And uh, there's uh, in, the, in the minor leagues as well. But when you come right down to it, uh, the experience of going to a game, as you mentioned, Eric, uh, that's, that's still the one thing that has not changed. You, you go to uh, – a small number of people go to watch the, the baseball Others are there just for the food, for the for the drinks. Um, some of them are there are there to work on their tan. Uh, others uh, are there to get the promotion of the day, whether it's a bobblehead or or whatever kind of a giveaway it is. Uh, I, I don't think that's changed. I mean, the pandemic still has an effect here in early 2021 uh, because uh, of uh, limitations on the number of people that you can have in the stands. Um, I'm told that going to a game with a 25% capacity is fantastic because there are there's you're not squeezed you don't have to wait in super long lines for things and your odds of catching a foul ball are really good I just yes that, about that. that too so uh, I, I think those are the uh, uh, how the pandemic has affected baseball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeff summed up the 2020 season pretty well, and you know, both in terms of the, the limitations of the MLB schedule and the disappearance of the minor leagues, which uh, you know, I particularly hit me hard because again, I'm I'm I like the minor leagues a lot, but uh, again, I was listening to the Red Sox game down in Texas just a night or two ago, and the the uh, broadcasters couldn't stop talking about uh, apparently they have either lifted or greatly relaxed the limitations for social gatherings and there were thousands and thousands of people there shoulder to shoulder which you know leaving aside whether that's good bad or indifferent it does certainly show that people are hungry for the experience of getting back to a to a baseball game um, also i can i can tell you personally that just driving around last weekend um you know most most baseball and you know, red sox games are around here are uh, attendance restricted and college games aren't letting uh, the colleges aren't letting anybody in to watch. I stopped and watched a team of totally random little leaguers for an hour last weekend. Well, that's I, had awesome. no idea, I had no <laughs> idea who any of them were. I still don't. It was in the town next to me. 
they were lining up the plane. I said, oh, geez, baseball. They went and watched it. So I, mean, I, I think I think that's probably a testament to how hungry people are for that ballpark experience. You know, even if it's at that level, people like me and will, uh, you know, will go watch. So and I'm also glad that Jeff mentioned some of the rule changes because, you know, it, it does reflect that MLB for better or worse, uh, Major League Baseball for better or worse is trying to shift, does recognize that. You know, there are issues with pace of play, issues with other things. I think they realize they do have to evolve in some form. People like me don't like all the stuff that they're trying to do. And, you know, but I, I think I, I give them some credit, I think, for trying. I mean, I think they realize their game needs to look a little different in the 21st century while still retaining kind of the core of baseball. You know, yeah, it'll, it'll, yeah, it, it'll never look again like it did when I was 10, but that's think things adapt you have to kind of roll with that so we'll, we'll see where it goes well jeff and kurt thank you so much for joining us today um wonderful conversation and your insights were were just just fantastic makes me excited to get out to a game this summer uh i like a beer and a hot dog so uh that sounds like a good plan um and uh again our uh thank you for sharing your stories and our readers of course um can check out your two articles in this summer's magazine that brings us to the end of today's show. Voyager, the podcast, is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Phoenix Studios' executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick. Our sound engineer for this episode is Sarah Miller. Thank you, Sarah. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlies. Thanks to today's guests, Jeff Ash and Kurt Blumenau, as well as our digital media interns, Hypatia Fitzsimons and Cora Mullen. If you haven't already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to the website at uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all of our shows. To learn more about Voyager or to subscribe to our magazine, please visit voyagermagazine.org. I'm your host, Eric Morgan. Thanks for listening.